It's Monday, September 27th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The Biden administration has been bogged down with some stumbles recently in Afghanistan, immigration out of control in Del Rio, Texas, and the fate of the massive spending bill still unclear. Analysts say that Biden badly needs a win, and the passage of his domestic plan could be the last thing possible before the midterm elections. Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News, joins us for this and the fight over lifting the debt limit. Next, the liquor shortage caused by the pandemic still continues in some states, and they are having to resort to rationing liquor supplies to keep up. As with many other industries, problems at every step of the supply chain is affecting liquor stocks. Some producers are having a hard time sourcing glass bottles, the cost of importing liquor is high, and there's a shortage of truck drivers hampering delivery. Joe Hernandez, reporter at NPR, joins us for why some states are still short on liquor. Finally, the future of retail could feature live stream shopping. Network is a shopping app that functions as sort of a QVC for hyped up streetwear. It offers up a digital shopping experience where clothing makers and customizers can talk about their products through live broadcasts and shoppers can buy directly from the app. Jacob Gallagher, on-trend columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Nearly 30,000 migrants have been encountered at Del Rio since September 9th, with the highest number at one time reaching approximately 15,000. Today, we have no migrants remaining in the camp under the International Bridge. Joining us now is Ginger Gibson, Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Ginger. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about uh, the Biden administration right now. There's obviously a lot of problems going on right now. His domestic agenda in the Build Back Better plan is unclear still. You know, we're still dealing with a lot of fallout from Afghanistan and the, and the uh, removal of troops from there and everything that happened after that. And immigration also continues to be a big problem, as we saw in Del Rio, Texas, with uh, just a ton of Haitian immigrants down there. Um, one of your NBC News colleagues was uh, doing an analysis of what's been going on and basically said, you know, the Biden administration needs a win, possibly a little bit more. Everybody's looking to the big uh, spending plan as one of the last things that they can do before the midterm elections get here. We know that the president has really struggled in the last few weeks. And as my colleague John Allen writes, we see the public approval numbers dipping. People are becoming displeased with the president. They don't think that he's delivering on the things that he promised. And as John likes to say, you know, this is an administration that campaigned on competence. That was their brand. And when people start to think that you lack that competence, it's real trouble for a president and for a White House. And so a win on the Hill or two, maybe a win somewhere else in foreign policy would be pretty big for Biden right now. Right. Yeah. You mentioned the approval numbers. Gallup had his approval rating at 43 percent, which is pretty low there. So what does President Biden have to do to help pass the legislation or, or tur you know, turn around some of these other issues? Yeah, we saw the president last week holding these meetings with folks from the Hill, Democrats of different stripes, moderates and progressives trying to make the case that they need to get this done. 
And I think at some point we're probably going to need to see him go out and give some kind of cover to whichever one of these boring factions is the loser. Uh, if he can make the case that they're not actually losing, that they're getting everything they want and more, he might be able to get someone to back down from their threats and get this legislation through Congress. I mean, they don't need Republicans. They just need their own party to right. come together and vote. So this should be pretty easy, but it's turning out to be more difficult. Yeah, exactly. That's one of the tough parts. So, you know, they're trying to go through this. The moderates say that it's too big of a bill, $3.5 trillion, too big. And, uh, you know, the progressives on the other side are saying, well, you're not coming back with any numbers. You're not giving us anything. You're just saying no. So this is one of the things that they have to really figure out. Yeah, I mean, this is brass tacks. You know, this is down where the, as, as another cliche would say, where you meet the road, right? So this is um, the things they have to iron out. And they're on this really tight deadline. They talked about voting on Monday. We don't know if that's going to happen. Nancy Pelosi said on Sunday she doesn't hold votes on bills she doesn't have the votes for. So we'll see. But this week is going to be crunch time for them to get any of this done. The debt limit extension is also something being worked on. Uh, this is an interesting one because Republicans say you know, it's something that needs to be extended, something that we need to avert a government shutdown. But it looks like they're going to be blocking it with a filibuster. They want to do this on a separate package so that Democrats have to put a number on it. Like how much is the limit that the U.S. can spend? And, uh, you know, some estimates out there say it could be 30 trillion dollars or more. That's right. Congress has sort of gotten around putting a number on the debt limit for a long time by just saying it's suspended. It doesn't exist at all until a date in the future. If they put it on the reconciliation bill, this sort of esoteric, arcane way that they're passing some spending, then they would have to put a number on it. They would have to say this X billions of dollars. And Republicans just think that that's more politically unacceptable for voters, that if they can say they voted for this number, it's, it's hard to criticize someone. They voted to raise the debt ceiling until December of 2022. But different if you say they voted to add $50 billion and to the nation's debt. The last thing I wanted to talk about uh, briefly is finally this Arizona audit that was done by this contractor group Cyber Ninjas is done. They were looking in Maricopa County uh, just to see what was going on with the elections. In the end, big shocker, they still said that Joe Biden won, but they pointed out a bunch of inconsistencies, they say, when it comes to uh, illegal voting, uh, deleted election files. But... Everybody experts and ele other election experts looking into what they were doing say it just kind of shows that they didn't really understand anything that they were doing there. This group has been sort of discredited time and time again, but what they're trying to do is discredit the election and our election system as a whole, making the case that people should doubt the results in the future, even if it doesn't mean that. Donald Trump won in 2020. Um, and this could be setting up for him to make the case, uh, should he run again, that the election's rigged again. And I think what we're seeing is more pushback of that. We saw Republicans in Arizona saying, look, Biden won. This is clear. And I think that we got a little bit of a mixed bag because we got some some things that are in this report that Trump aligned folks are going to point to as proof possibly right. in the future. Ginger Gibson Deputy Washington Digital Editor at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. It goes from anything from being unable to get glass bottles to the cost of shipping going up internationally, a lack of truck drivers, or just a lack of raw materials to be able to make the liquor in the first place and keep up with demand. Joining us now is Joe Hernandez, reporter at NPR. Thanks for joining us, Joe. 
You got it. I want to talk about something I haven't really heard about yet. There's a liquor shortage. Uh, there's a lot of states that are going through liquor shortages at their liquor stores. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with supply chain issues at, at every moment, largely due to the pandemic. So, Joe, help us walk through some of this. Where, what are we seeing with this? Sure. Well, there's about a zillion reasons for this. And they started back probably about a year, a year and a half ago when the pandemic began. If you remember back then, in some states, stores shut down for a while and then there was sort of a crush to get liquor and they ran out of stock. And then since then, we've seen these supply chain issues in all parts of the economy, really, but it's affecting the liquor industry as well. And it goes from anything from being unable to get glass bottles to the cost of shipping going up internationally, a lack of truck drivers or just a lack of raw materials to be able to make the liquor in the first place and keep up with demand. Now, I live in California, uh, just anecdotally, I don't think I have seen it here. So what states are we looking at that are having this problem? And specifically, is this, a, is this an issue for liquor stores or are grocery stores also affected by this? I don't want to oversell it. It's not like you're going to walk into a liquor store and there won't be anything on the shelves. Right, right. No, um, I get you. But this is happening across the U.S. in different states. So North Carolina, New Jersey, Vermont, Utah. And what's happening in some of these states that have state-run liquor sales is that the states are actually saying, okay, we're running low on Buffalo Trace bourbon, so we're only going to allow customers to buy two bottles at a time, say. And to your average consumer, maybe two bottles per day of bourbon is probably not going to be what they're buying anyway. But this might affect your smaller bars and restaurants or even larger ones that tend to buy in bulk and need to have this stuff on hand for consumers when they come in to get it. As far as the question about grocery stores and other vendors, it really depends on the state and what they're doing. Like I said, in some of these control states, the state government itself makes the decision. But in states where liquor stores are privately run, it might be up to those stores themselves or liquor store chains to decide whether or not they need to ration certain products over others. Hey, you, know, you did mention a couple of the reasons why there's shortages. Bottle sourcing is one of them. Uh, truck drivers, you know, labor shortages all over the place are having a big issue. But the time that it takes to make the liquor itself, that's also one thing when we're talking about supply and demand. This past year was such a time of high demand you know, if you burn through some of your, you know, excess bottles that you might have and whatnot, you know, you can't just make more on a dime. You know, the aging process for a lot of this liquor is what also takes time. And this is a huge one because unlike in some other industries where maybe you could ramp up production quickly with liquor, you can't exactly do that. I mean, you could distill a bottle of liquor, but then you have to age it for eight years or 10 years. So the liquor that we're all drinking now was actually made, uh, it could have been a decade ago that it was made. So Distilleries, while they're trying to ramp up production and expand their operations, we're talking about liquor supplies that are going to be some years down the road anyway. In addition to the aging, it's also the raw materials, which I mentioned earlier. So there is a global shortage of agave, which is used to make tequila. So places that are, are making tequila, you know, it's not like they can go go back five years and plant more agave. That was what one analyst told me. So you're basically stuck with what you have now. And if what you have now isn't enough, then you're not going to be able to make enough for the demand that's out there. Yeah, you, you mentioned Buffalo Trace, uh, you know, very popular brand. They're doing a $1.2 billion expansion at some of their distilleries. But even still, it's going to take a few years just to catch up to the demand. So, you know, to your point, you know, you just can't ramp it up that quickly. 
you know, obviously the effects, they all trickle down to the consumers and whatnot. Are we seeing price increases related to any of this or is it just the shortages? How's that playing out? You know, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think that some of the the restaurants that may be unable to get the liquor may have to make some changes based on the shortages. But I don't know about whether the liquor stores themselves are actually charging higher prices or, or not based on demand. Joe Hernandez, reporter at NPR. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Family Style To Go Network's virtual festival. This is where food, streetwear, and street culture come to meet. Joining us now is Jacob Gallagher, on-trend columnist at the Wall Street Journal, talking about fashion and what people are wearing. Thanks for joining us, Jacob. Thank you for having me on. I want to talk about an interesting thing. You know, everybody remembers the old QVC days where you have a host up there shilling out whatever the latest product is. And we only have a hundred left of these. Call us now in the next two minutes to order your thing. So this new app right now, it's been around for a number of years, but a lot of people are saying this could be a possible future for retail. So we're talking about an app called Network, N-T-W-R-K. And what they're doing is a lot of live stream shows and giving people the opportunity to shop, interact directly with, uh, you know, whoever's hosting that little tidbit there. It's got a lot of big names behind it as well. So, Jacob, walk us through some of this. What are we seeing with this new app? So what it is is effectively you download it to your phone, you open it up, and effectively if you're there live, uh, you can watch a stream. It's someone selling anything in principle. Right now it's pretty much limited to, as they bill it, kind of anything rare. So that can be sneakers, it can be t-shirts, it can be even books of a certain nature, it can be art of a kind, it can be kind of these collectible figures. But, you know, what you're really looking at is the app is targeted at kind of that sub 35 consumer, heavily male, that is interested in rarefied products. You know, this is in some ways a variation of that drop model. You know, you've got to be at your computer. You've got to be at a store at an appointed time to buy something. This is really riffing on that. But really what it's doing is it's yet another way to connect a creator, a retailer, a host that might be a kind of internet personality with the consumer. And the app was launched in 2018, but you know, you're really seeing kind of it it take off now. And I think probably that has a lot to do with the past year and how we've interacted with shopping in the past year. But you're, you're kind of seeing this way of shopping now where people are watching these hosts, they're talking through the products, they're saying, here's this pair of sneakers, here's how many there are of them, here's how I made them, or here's what makes them special. And people kind of like that unique stuff and they like hearing it uh, from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Totally. I mean, it combines a lot of things as you've been saying right now, you know, it combines that little bit of unboxing video, you know, obviously the rarefied objects, they're, they're very limited quantity, the live video component, the immediate gratification if you want to go and buy it right now. So yeah, it's got a lot of good things going for it. And, and you know, but but that's what a lot of people are looking at when they're talking about, you know, these digital shopping experiences and how they play out. As I mentioned, there's a lot of big names behind this. Tell us a little bit about that because that also gives the push, you know, when big names are behind it and they start kind of uh, spreading the word around, it helps to lift it up as well. 
So in terms of funding, you have one of the initial funders, uh, the initial backers is Jimmy Iveen, who is, of course, a very illustrious, very famous record executive. I should say his son is one of the founders of Network. His son ran Meltdown Comics, which if you were in Los Angeles, is a very well-known comic book store that kind of, they had a pseudo live stream kind of YouTube video show that was the template of what network became. So that existed and the network kind of was birthed out of that idea of selling these kind of collectible things through the internet. And then that's kind of how network came to be. And then in terms of people that are forward facing, you have people like Ben Baller, who is a celebrity jeweler, a very famous celebrity jeweler. He hosts a show. You have someone like Scott Rogowski, who hosted the beloved HQ Trivia, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners participated in. Yeah, I was Uh, wondering where that guy has been. Yeah, he just started hosting a show where he unboxes cards and um, trading cards, and he sells some of them on the show. And there's more people like that lined up. So they're targeting these kind of both larger influencers and as well kind of that amorphous term micro-influencer. And then they have these... One of the founders who was more had his feet in the streetwear world previously, Aaron Levant, he had founded Agenda, which was this kind of very well-known, very successful street fashion trade show. He also had worked on ComplexCon, which was this, for lack of a better term, rowdy, very hyped up, weekend-long street fashion, streetwear event, if you will. And that was very driven by the drop model. That was very like only products you can get here. It was really kind of a a bonanza of clothing, if you will. And he's kind of bringing that model over into network a little bit with these weekend long events that they're having. Those events, I think, are kind of what is driving the app forward in terms of getting the most press getting the most eyeballs on it on those weekends, you know, kind of putting it forward as this more polished product. I think where the app probably has a little bit to go probably is on the day to day. It still is pretty glitchy for, you know, that kind of daily experience. Those users that are not network affiliated, so to speak, you work in podcasting, you know, you have to produce something. It's sometimes hard. You have technological issues with everything. And yeah, multiply, it, it, multiply it, it, that 10 times a day over a stream. And then as they scale the app up, they're going to multiply that more. They have plans, you know, they, they've talked about rolling out tools to make people more comfortable on camera. And I think that they will get there. I think also, though, that the kind of casual nature of it is an asset a little bit. You know, you don't want things to be too polished. You mentioned unboxing videos and those really thrive on YouTube because they are so casual. You don't have someone that's completely 100% camera ready that looks like a Ken doll who's a complete robot doing them. There's yeah, someone who's they're normal casual. people, exactly. Some somebody like you that you can see yourself buying some of those things. But you know, in in all that vein, right? It does have to kind of fire in all the cylinders. It's got to be entertaining. It's got to be the right product, right? That exclusivity thing. But, you know, they're already uh, doing pretty well. They got about 2.5 million downloads and about 200,000 customers. So a lot of people looking forward to, you know, what this could continue to evolve into. Jacob Gallagher, on-trend columnist for The Wall Street Journal, talking about fashion and what people are wearing. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, man. Have a good one. That's it for today. 
Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.